This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen. I'm Gabriel Rossman. I'm Clayton Childress. Today, our guest is Philippa Chong from McMaster University. Philippa will be coming out with a new book on book reviewing inside the critics' circle, book reviewing in uncertain times with Princeton University Press. Today, inside the critics' circle and book criticism. Our discussion was recorded on October 2nd, 2019. And now we turn to Philippa Chong from McMaster University. Philippa is coming out with a new book. It's Inside the Critics Circle, book reviewing in uncertain times with Princeton University Press. It's about the book review business, a powerful part of the publishing industry. And it got tons of buzz at ASA. A lot of people were telling me, you got to talk to her. This is a great book. You're going to want to talk to her. So thank you very much for joining us, Philippa. Pleasure to be here. First of all, why study book critics? What drew you to the topic? Oh, well, I think I came to the topic, as many sociologists do, just being interested in inequality, right? And who gets what and why. And particularly, I'm interested in constructions of worth and deservingness that often undergird why people actually get praise or why they get promotions or raises and things like that. But, you know, as a student of doing my comps and things like that, something that I found that was missing in a lot of the literature was that, you know, I I wasn't getting at people's justifications, gatekeepers' justifications for why they made the decisions that they did. Mm. And so I wanted to get access to that, to hear the words out of the gatekeeper's mouth, so to speak. And so this is kind of what book critics do. They offer in writing, no less, a justification for why they think something is good or bad and all the reasons for that. And, you know, being able to be so open with that reasoning was something that I found very attractive and fruitful as a social scientist interested in inequality. All the better that it was in the world of art, which is seen as this weird subjective taste where everything is chaotic. But at the same time, we know that a lot of the forms of inequality or status orders that exist in the art world kind of parallel inequalities we see in more standard labor markets as well. Oh, that's interesting. I had a couple thoughts. So one is that, you know, book critics are great because to my mind, and, you know, you two can tell me if you agree with this or not, um, the core of production of culture sociology is the Hirsch model from 1972, where he argues that, you know, you have the original artist, so then the original artist, they have to get a deal with a cultural distributor. And then if they get a deal with a cultural distributor, maybe they can get attention from surrogate consumers. And so surrogate consumers would be things like radio stations, but also book critics. And book critics are actually one of Hearst's examples, where in basically every culture industry, you have some group of people whose job it is to focus attention. And, you know, lately this has been developed with people like Carpic and information regimes and stuff like that. But it's kind of, you know, focusing on what is the key leverage for uh, allocating fame in in a major culture industry. So I'll I'll let you take that one before I get to the next one. Yeah, so... You know, I think that my intellect, I spoke about my intellectual drive, but from a more um, personal story, I actually used to work in the book publishing world for a little while. I worked in the marketing and publicity world, no less. So I was one of those people trying to uh, span that boundary, right, Uh and get the attention of the reviewers. And these were, you know, there were these holy people we were just trying (laughs) to get the attention for. Now, eventually I left there, um, but I think that probably influenced my decision in terms of how to access 
um, some of the social processes I was interested in. But what was so ironic, I think, was that I went in in this project thinking about these gatekeepers as really powerful people that I remember dying to try to attract their attention in my professional life. Hmm. But then when I started to speak to them as research subjects, what really comes out is, you know, a lot of the vulnerability and insecurity and precarity that characterizes what it's like to go through writing a book review. Are they basically freelancers? The majority of people are freelancers, yes. Mm -hmm. I would just say that the sense of precarity, the sense of vulnerability, insecurity, anxiety is not unique to people because they're freelancers. Interesting. Are they worried about securing that next gig? Like, what what is the insecurity about? Can you maybe flesh that out for us a bit? Yeah, I think there's multiple forms of insecurity, and I actually refer to it as forms of uncertainty in the book, right? So the first form of uncertainty that I talk about is epistemic uncertainty. And that's really about, like, how do I know that I'm doing a good job? Mm. How do I know that when I say a book is good or bad, that I'm right, given that it's so subjective, right? How do I know that I'm the right person for this job? That type of insecurity definitely feeds into people's trepidation about whether or not they should be as bold or as honest as they might be otherwise. Also, I mean, the fact that a lot of the book reviewers that I interview, these are people who are reviewing new books for like the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post. These are people that are just at the beginning of the consecration process. So they don't know if what they have to say is going to flesh out down the line. I don't know that people are necessarily uh, keeping track of whether their book reviews ended up with someone who won the National Book Award and go, hey, I'm pretty okay. You know, I don't think that people are necessarily doing that. I want to bounce off that for a bit. So what yeah. you're saying right now reminds me of uh, Bourdieu's field of cultural production, mm -hmm. where that you know, little thing. yeah, yeah, exactly. He he <laughs> argues that uh, you know any kind of gatekeeper, basically, um, I mean, he doesn't use this language, but I always think of it as like a bipartite network of status, where you have the gatekeepers on the one side and the artists on the other, mm -hmm. and the artists derive their status from association with gatekeepers and then gatekeepers uh, derive their long run reputations from association with artists. Mm -hmm. And basically you want to be the guy who said, I discovered Picasso. Like I was saying, you should check out Picasso before anyone else. Mm -hmm. And conversely, you don't want to be the person who gave a pan to Nirvana's Nevermind for Rolling Stone. Right. I mean, you don't want to be the person where here's some new piece of art that changes a genre for five years and, you know, dominates a genre for five years. And you said, eh, two and a half stars, yeah. you know. So do you see any of that with uh, book reviews of like people are anxious that like if they pan something that turns out to be well regarded or alternately they give a rave to something that people say is crap, that it'll hurt their long run reputation? Yeah, it's a good question. And it speaks to the second part of uncertainty, actually, that I talk about in the book, which I term social uncertainty. And it's about not being able to predict or tolerate how other people are going to react to your book reviews. Some of it being the fact that maybe you panned a book that everybody loves and or loved a book that everyone thinks is really stupid. And definitely my book reviewers shared stories of both of those things happening. Now is the question, do they feel regret over it? I would say in general that people who said they hated books that ended up winning big awards were pretty okay with it. And they're okay with it because what was less important was that was not so much that they fell in line, so to speak, with the critical consensus, but that their review was reasoned, mm -hmm. that they had good reason for not liking the book that they did. Now, this one instance of a pretty powerful critic, he wrote a rave review of a book that everybody just panned 
and people made fun of him for it. And people that I interviewed independently brought up this instance to make fun of him for it, right? I found that people lost more sleep about being overly positive than overly critical. Oh, interesting. So, so that seems like it would create a ratchet effect towards negative book reviews. Hmm. And, you know, book reviews often do tend to be negative, but are there countervailing forces that would push towards positive book reviews, such as, you know, this author might review your next book and you don't want to piss them off? Absolutely. And so even thinking about the separation of critics and artists that you had mentioned earlier, in the book reviewing world, that's actually not the case. Indeed, most reviewers are themselves working novelists. Mm -hmm. And so there's absolutely, although you might anticipate that there would be this ratchet effect towards negative reviewing, indeed, I find the opposite. Indeed, I find that critics are super concerned about hurting the feelings, hurting the reputation, and hurting their future opportunities of themselves, really, because they don't want to pan a review of somebody who might review their book down the line, or mm -hmm. they don't want to review, they don't want to pan a book published by a publisher that they might want to publish with mm -hmm. down the line. This is pretty similar to the conversation we were having a few weeks ago about why sociology book reviews and like contemporary soci mm -hmm. are overwhelmingly positive, even though I think yeah. we all know that most sociology books are meh, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same dynamics is, is what I'm gathering. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, huh. a, it's a restricted field. And a dynamic that emerges from that is, you know, so like uh, the editors of contemporary sociology regularly complain right, that they can't get negative reviews. Uh, Felipe, um, I know you were primarily interviewing the reviewers themselves, but did you get a sense, is there a tension between the review outlets and like the managing editors wanting to get more critical reviews and then the reviewers themselves maybe not wanting to be so critical because they are reviewing their peers? You know, yes, at the recruiting stage. Oh, interesting. So yes, in that some editors are very aware that there are novelists in particular who just can't get the job done that they cannot be critical even when it's warranted and mm -hmm. they watch out for those people and they don't ask them to review so it is it is something that they look out for this 400 pages of lorem ipsum over and over again is a bold new work that will change how you feel about it. <laughs> I have a, I have a question about does the uh, pressure to like the pressure to not get panned for your reviews does it ever create an incentive for people to gravitate towards and praise you know high concept stuff I see this or I feel I see this sometimes in music although Gabriel I'll defer to you where you get like these high concept albums that seem to be really praised. I've seen it in movies too. And it's like the, you know, like the complexity of it or the high browedness of it feels like an insulation against, uh, you know, the potential that you, you, you express love for something and, and people don't like it. Mm -hmm. You expect people to fake to like it. Mm -hmm. Any of that? Mm. Not so much. I haven't, I haven't scanned many reviews for that in particular, though. I mean, literary reviews are often used as the benchmark for high art terms, right, in many of our studies. So do some people do that? Probably. But how is it being viewed? There was certainly a feeling amongst many, many of the reviewers that I interviewed that, you know what? The New York Times or the Chicago Tribune, that's not the place for that kind of talk about books. Mm. Because who are we serving? We are writing for average people who are maybe reading this paper or, you know, on their tablet on the way to work. They don't need to be reading about that right now. We just want to give you a sense of this book being out here. Here's the context in which it's arriving. And here's why we think it might be worth a read or not. 
That's really cool. Do um, and I, I would guess there would be some variation in this, as there always is. But mm -hmm. do reviewers think of because uh, these are reviewers are also writers. Yeah. Do they think of the reviews as like objects of writing in themselves, or are they really just evaluations? Yeah. So there's a chapter in my book. It's maybe it's a heading or a subheading, but it's about the anatomy of a review and what what does it mean to write a good review? And, you know, part of it is simply the summary. But people are very, very adamant that they're not there just to write book reports. Yeah. Right. They're doing something more. They're hired to do something more. And part of the best reviewers that people um, identify is their ability to write almost at the same level as the uh, novelist that they're reviewing themselves. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a podcast recently and a reviewer, a uh, film reviewer, made the comment about a Wesley Morris review mm. saying, oh, his take on the movie is absolutely wrong, but it's one of the best pieces. It's one of the best reviews I've ever read. Exactly. Right. Totally differentiated. Those as two very different things. Yes, exactly. And this really goes to the third type of uncertainty, which I call institutional uncertainty. And it's partially about there's very little taken for granted in book reviewing. What is what is a review? You know, what is mm -hmm. a good review? What audience is it supposed to serve? Um, you know, are we supposed to have more high minded types of criticism or should we just guide people towards books they should read over the summer? It's unclear. Mm -hmm. And part of it. What else is unclear? Um, Clayton, what did you just say again? Just about is the evaluation what matters or is it the like criticism, the art of the review itself? Exactly. And then people prioritize whether it should be about kind of a consumer report, um, whether it should be a beautiful essay mm -hmm. and whether it should really just be actually a news item, which was surprising to me. The idea of book reviews as being part of a newspaper and just as important as learning about news on Congress, for instance. And what, what does that entail then? Like uh, to make something newsworthy, like I don't get it. Yeah. So when I ask people, you know, what what is the goal of reviewing? Everyone's saying that you guys um, aren't really needed anymore. So why do you keep doing it or what value do you offer? Well, some people offer the fact that, no, we do help guide people towards good books, right? There's that surrogate or kind of intermediary function. And for some people, it, it was about, well, I'm able to put it in a richer context to understand uh, the value of the book. And for some people, they think just writing about the book in a newspaper, writing about a book in a general news outlet is the value of writing a book review. Because why do we consult the newspaper? The newspaper or news outlets, they give us a sense of common concern, issues of public concern in the world and how we think about what matters today. To the extent that we have books there, we're saying that book culture is part of understanding the world today. That it's not something that we should just let literary academics talk about in their journals, nor is it something that we should just let the Amazon reviewers take over in, in their small little paragraphs. This is something that all of us as people in the day-to-day -day need to know just as much as we need to know about what's going on in Congress. That's the argument. What... um. I'm asking you to give sociologists life advice, um, and I think I know the answer to this question. Um, studying reviewers, do you think an author should ever write back to a negative review? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. First of all, I can tell you how it affects reviewers. Reviewers okay. have gotten letters uh -huh. from people, the, the writers, their family uh -huh. members, fans, uh, lawyers in some case, about having written very, very negative reviews. Should someone ever do it? I would question the reason behind it and then how effective that intervention would really be in accomplishing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
That would be my question. So <laughs> very polite Canadian, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do people do this though? Is it for the money? Is this considered an art? And you know, is this considered like a genre of writing in and of itself, where you can gain stature? Like, what's the payoff? What motivates people to do this? Yeah, chapters. Chapter six, just so you know. Where you're <laughs> uh, so why, why do people write reviews? And indeed, when I ask people to self-identify, you know, in the beginning, like, what do you do? A lot of people actually don't identify as reviewers at all. So I'm like, why do you why do you do this? And a lot of people will emphasize wholeheartedly, it is not for the money. There's not a lot of money in this, as you know, hmm. reading the book, coming up with comments, doing all the drafts. People estimate that when you put in all the hours, they're making less than minimum wage to do this. Totally. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, here... Uh, in the chapter, what I show is that actually the reason that people do book reviewing is because it helps them in other parts of their life. It helps them with their writing career. It helps them feel like a writer. It helps them learn to be better writers sometimes. Indeed, by you know writing a book review, you've got to pay attention to what's working in the language or the plotting or what's not. Uh-huh. Also, it can actually be a really effective way to publicize yourself as a writer not just as a reviewer because you write a super interesting and super compelling analysis of a book and then you just scan to the bottom of the review and there's your byline and it says Philippa Chong author of Inside the Critic Circle coming out with you know Princeton this fall oh okay so it's promo for your book or you want to catch the eye of the presses is that it it can be that, but I also want to, I don't want to emphasize the idea that critics are just self-serving, self-interested people, right? Just trying to get their own norms of good literature or their own name out there. I think that's a really sort of unidimensional way to understand what it is that they're doing. Mm. Um, part of it is also part of their identity of being a writer. It's hard to be a writer, mm. you know, especially when the evidence is just that you have a book come out because that happens what once every five years if you're lucky mm-hmm. by engaging in book reviewing a lot of people felt that they were engaged in the literary world mm-hmm. in a way that could steal their identities as writers first i have a question does guilt motivate it like it does in this business where it's like <laughs> oh, i guess i gotta somebody's gotta do it i haven't done one in a while Some people say it is like a professional responsibility, but I reckon there's far more writers who aren't reviewing than writers who are reviewing. Who aren't, yeah, just like sociology. (laughs) And uh, what, did people talk at all about uh, factors why they might accept or decline to review a particular book or for a particular outlet or things like that? Just their decision-making and deciding to review or not? Yeah, so... In terms of practical reasons why someone might not accept a review, these are things like time and it's interfering with other projects such as their own independent writing, right? In terms of ethics, some people would turn down a review because they felt for whatever reason that they couldn't give it a fair shake. They had to recuse themselves either because they were too friendly or there was some kind of history that prevented them from being judicious. Mm -hmm. Another reason that people would not say yes to a review and a key reason that they would say yes to a review was this idea that they were not or they were the perfect reader Mm -hmm. for that book. So, for instance, if someone felt that they couldn't connect with the book, they couldn't, they just didn't like, for instance, if you don't like a funny toned kind of book, don't review that because you're just going to hate it, right? And also there's this sense, like I wrote about this and Clayton, I know you've written about this too, but this idea of like that there has to be a good match. 
that there has to be similarities in the identity and the experience of the reader to connect with the work itself that will lend to an interesting and fair review. Mm -hmm. And this is something I only touch upon in the book, and it's something that I'm continuing to write about in article form, but there is definitely a strong gender dynamic Mm -hmm. in terms of who was reviewing what. And so I have some preliminary data that shows that there is definitely um, a gender trend in terms of women being asked to review women's work Mm -hmm. and men being reviewing uh, men's work more often. Mm -hmm. And part of what's interesting about that and, and that it came through my interviews was that some people didn't want to review books by women, especially first books by women, because they didn't want to be in a situation where they might have to write a bad review. Oh, interesting. They didn't want to hurt the potential career of a junior author. So they just said no. Hmm. And this creates, you know, their intention is perhaps um, laudable, right? And that they don't want to hurt a career of a young woman. But at the same time, this puts editors in a situation where it's just harder to find people to review books by women. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What what did you come away with through the whole exercise about how, you know, people judge hard to judge things or making judgments, you know, with, uh, you know, in unstructured circumstances? Mm-hmm. What did I come away with? I came away with a few things. First of all, that the evaluation of a book in terms of the review of the book, a lot of things go into the review of a book that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with the book itself. All right. And indeed, I don't want to say that's unique to book reviewing or arts reviewing. Indeed, maybe we can. That statement is probably true of a lot of objects. We could probably just switch out the terms. Right. So there's that. And then I think something that really shocked me at more human level as well as a sociological level is that these are people who are writing for the most important cultural pages in arguably the Anglo publishing field. They're freelancers, but I mean, that's the structure of it right now. What was surprising to me is that even though they're in these places of power, they felt really insecure about their position. Mm. And what that taught me and an idea that I'm continuing to write about as well is how the feeling of power Mm. and then the structural position of power don't always tightly couple. Interesting. And that matters a lot. And that matters a lot because when they decouple, when someone's in a gatekeeper position but doesn't feel powerful, it affects what they do with their opportunity to distribute rewards in a particular way. But the point is also that for various different reasons throughout the book, including, you know, should I be as openly honest on a particular review? Well, if they someone's going to come get me down the line, I shouldn't do that. So there's just like at every different part of the process, it's affecting how people will put together their review because they have to look after themselves. Hmm. Because they want to keep their New York Times gig? I don't know. You know, I was thinking about this even when I was, you know, I'm writing this book as an assistant professor, right? Just coming in. And I beat out, well, like 200 people for this job. And I'm like, this is what everybody wants, right? You want to get the job. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, look at me. I have this kind of power now. We're doing this job. We were doing job talks and stuff like that. But can I tell you how it was the word beleaguered or Clayton would know. But anyways, I felt like all this pressure from all the politics and all this other stuff, what my senior people would think and is the vote anonymous or not? I felt like all of this stuff I had to consider in making that decision. It was just so strange that I was in this position 
where I could make a decision, a really consequential distributional decision. And at the same time, I felt probably less or more vulnerable than I did maybe even as a graduate student. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Philippa Chong from McMaster University. Her book is Inside the Critics Circle, Reviewing in Uncertain Times with Princeton University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Clayton Childress and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.